Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to Yukon 360. It's the only podcast on the entire planet Earth that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Today, we are coming to you from the third floor of the Lakeside Building in beautiful stores, Connecticut. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka. Hello. Ken Best. I'm here behind the board, as usual. He is here behind the board, as usual. We have a good show for you, as always. Now, you know what? A very good show. I'm confident saying that. Some may call it great, but... Some might call it great. Um, before we start, I want to thank some great people, uh, Stephen, Sean, and Bob, uh, who are listeners to the podcast and who were alums and were visiting campus recently and contacted us through twitter.com. That's at UConn Podcast, if you want to do the same. And uh, Julie and I had coffee with them at the Beanery. And if, by the way, if I'm getting any of your names wrong, I apologize. I'm terrible with names, among other things. But uh, they're great guys. We had a great time talking to them. And if anyone else wants to come and get coffee with us and talk about the podcast. We're still humble. We, it'll be a ways before we get too big for our fans, you know. Thanks, guys. It was nice meeting you. It was great talking to you. And uh, we might be talking to them in the future. Um, but before we get into that, why don't we jump into some Husky headlines? Let's do it. Ken, what's happening in the world? It's summertime on campus, and the uh, Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry uh, begins its summertime Saturday puppet show series with acclaimed puppeteers from around New England, starting July 28th with the Velcro Show, which is by the Caleb Puppet Company, and the shows are at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. at the Ballard Institute Theater in downtown stores. All of this summer's shows were created by UConn alums from the uh, world-renowned Puppet Arts Program. Cool. Uh, Velcro Kitty is a new show for children ages five and older, created by Caleb, as I said, which is by Caleb Martinez, one of our graduate student alums. On August 4th, the Bremen Town Musicians for children ages four and older will be presented by Cactus Head Puppets, which is operated by alums Megan and John Reagan. And then on August 11th, Puppet Arts alum John Cody will present Monkey and Dino's Funky Puppet Show. It sounds really fun to name a puppet show. For children six and older. Uh, I know both Caleb and John uh, Cody. Uh, they were among the puppeteers from UConn who created the Puppets Take the Pops program for the Boston Pops Orchestra a couple of years ago. That was the first time the Pops commissioned an original puppet show. Caleb was the performer who did Arthur Fiedler. Mm. reading the uh, Christmas story and participating in some of the other events. And John created two of the vignettes. For more information about this, you can go to the ballad website, BIMP, B-I-M-P at UConn.edu. All right. Julie, what's going on with you? A survey led by UConn's El Instituto, the Institute for Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies, found that the approximately 13,000 Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands residents who came to Connecticut after the hurricanes a couple years ago still struggled to meet basic needs. A third of the respondents said that housing was among their most pressing needs, while one-fifth said their biggest need was food. So while some of the displaced people received funding from FEMA, most of them have relied on local charities, school districts, their family up here for support. And the survey, which uh, was responded to by 1,300 people, was done on behalf of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, and it's going to help them inform long-term planning and action by funders, nonprofits, municipalities, and schools. And the Hartford Foundation will work with community organizations and leaders in the region to disseminate and act on those survey results. So still a lot going on with the um, people who are displaced by those hurricanes. And another thing, the gym is a place you go to get healthy, right? Yes. Well, if, mean, if you go. If you go to the gym. Right. Well, a brand new Yukon report out in the latest JAMA Dermatology Journal says that nearly half the gyms in the U.S. contain a potentially addictive carcinogen. Can you guess what it is? Uh, cigarette machines. 
<laughs> yup. Tanning beds. Oh. So this was really interesting to me. Exercise reduces the risk of every cancer except one, melanoma, which is the deadliest form of skin cancer. And scientists don't quite know the reason, but people who exercise heavily are actually at a greater risk of getting skin cancer. Interesting. So these gyms with tanning beds are essentially targeting people whose risk is already heightened for this cancer which is just crazy. UConn psychologist Sherry Pagoto also said in the CDC-funded study that people who tan in gyms tan more often and more addictively than people who tan elsewhere. Hmm. And Pagoto, who's a professor of allied health sciences and president of the Society of Behavioral Medicine, says in the report that by pairing exercise with tanning beds, gyms send the message that tanning is part of a healthy lifestyle. It is not. Very interesting stuff. Wow. Um, well, I have some sad news uh, this week. Dr. Nancy Petri of UConn Health, a UConn Health faculty member, uh, has passed away from breast cancer at the young age of 49. And uh, in addition to being well-liked by her colleagues, she was a leading national expert in uh, addiction disorders, uh, including gambling and internet addiction. She had published more than 300 articles over the course of her career, and she had done a lot of research, federally funded research, that actually found ways to sort of help people who have addictive disorders. She'd done a lot of great work. She was beloved by her colleagues, and um, her husband is also a UConn health faculty member. So our thoughts are with him and their children. That's a very sad thing to note. Also, the, the Dodd Prize in Human Rights, which is a prestigious prize that we give out every two years at the University of Connecticut, is now open for nominations. Whoever is listening to this right now, you can nominate someone. Mm. You can also nominate yourself. A lot of power. For the Dodd Human Rights Prize. I should say, because I know probably some people are thinking about it, I'm not eligible. I work at <laughs> UConn, so I probably... But no, it's a very prestigious award. Uh, past recipients have included, of course, President Bill Clinton, uh, Irish Taoiseach Bertie Ahern, I pronounced that correctly, um, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, Richard Goldstone, who was uh, a former uh, Chief Justice of the South African Supreme Court. All kinds of great organizations and people have won. So uh, it's a great award. It's a great feature of UConn. And uh, go ahead and uh, nominate someone, nominate a group, nominate a person. So while you're preparing your Dodd Prize nominations, you might want to stop off at a, I don't know, a local eatery, have something to eat, have a drink. That's a good idea. That smoothly brings us to our first segment (laughs) of the week. Smooth as ever, Tom. Julie, uh, Um, tell us what we're going to hear. I will. So this is kind of uh, the beginning of what we're calling an occasional series that has not yet been named, Tom would like to call it. Not another one. Julie's Entrepreneurship Corner. Yep. Corners. How many corners can we have? Only four. That I promise that won't actually be the name. But we know that UConn alums are wildly successful across all kinds of industries. And I think some of the most interesting stories are those of UConn's innovators, the entrepreneurs who find answers to important questions and then launch businesses to serve some unmet needs. So this series is going to have a bunch of different installments on alumni, faculty, student entrepreneurs all across various industries. And Today, we're doing one on a very interesting hot topic right now, beer. Uh, In Connecticut right now, we have 65 breweries and nearly 50 more in development. But 20 years ago, before this trend really took off, a UConn alum named David Walner opened what's known around here as Willie Brew. Willimantic Brewery is a staple in eastern Connecticut, a brew pub in a historic post office building. It has arguably the best nachos around, which Tom and I recently sampled. In, In my mind, there's no argument. No argument. And David Walner and company brew hundreds of different beers with 10 house brews on tap at any given time and 30 guest taps. So we visited with him to get a behind-the-scenes look at what went into developing his business. Get some of this going first. Part of the process is called mashing in.
we're doing is we're adding barley to water and the water will cause an enzyme reaction to allow the carbohydrates that are in the barley to turn into sugars. I am David Walner, I'm owner and brewer at the Willimantic Brewing Company, Yukon class in 1982. Willimantic Brewing Company, which recently celebrated 21 years in business, was one of the first breweries in the state, opening long before there was a craft brewery popping up practically weekly in Connecticut. Owner David Walner initially studied photography at UConn, but struggled with the other art disciplines that were part of the curriculum. He consulted an advisor and decided to follow in her footsteps, creating his own medical anthropology major. And in 1980, while I was going to UConn, uh, mail ordered a homebrew kit and then started getting my materials from Champlain's General Store in Eagleville, yeah. the cooks, and uh, the rest is history. Part of my passion was that I kind of just wanted to, you know, make beer and find a way to do it. Well, I worked for AV Associates till 1985, and in the process, um, I met my ex-wife, and she wanted to run a pub. So we opened up a little deli here in town called the Main Street Cafe. It was in the old Capitol Theater. While I was still home brewing, that was, let's learn about the restaurant business. After Main Street Cafe had been in business for a few years, the owners of a restaurant across the street decided to close. The Walners leased the space and transformed their deli into a full-service restaurant and craft beer bar. In 1996, another customer of Walners bought the 1909 Willimantic Post Office building, which had sat empty for nearly 30 years. So we worked out of an arrangement with them that we would help them renovate, we would move in and open up the brewery here. It was February 8th, 1997, we finally were able to open. It took almost a year from the day they bought it for us to renovate it, turning a post office into a restaurant brewery. And we opened as a, initially a craft beer bar uh, with 40 taps, a full menu, and uh, we got our brewing system a few months after that. And uh, so since 97, we've been brewing and serving hopefully great food in this awesome building. While he studied neither brewing nor business, Walner quickly found that he drew upon his liberal arts background from Yukon as he navigated his way through, and sometimes simply willed his way to, building a successful business. You go back to my you know, upbringing through Yukon and you know, psychology, the English, and so all of those little things that you pick up along the way prepared me for being in customer service, which wasn't necessarily my vocation, but you realize that you need to use all the tools that you've acquired to work with employees, work with your guests, um, to you know, design your menu and how things read and of course the, the chemistry behind brewing and just there's so many different factors that you don't realize you would draw on from a, a nice liberal arts you know, degree. But from there to here, and now 21 years here, never could have imagined it. His advice to entrepreneurs, persevere, have passion, and adapt. So this just happened to be something that I really persevered with. And I have to say, we've been very lucky. There's no doubt the first beers that you know, I made were probably, they wouldn't be treasured today. But I learned. But the entrepreneur end of it, it's, you, you just, I always had that failure is not an option. So, it didn't matter how deep in debt I got. It didn't matter that you know, I was scrounging and scraping to try to make things work. Um, you know, you just you persevere. And we've been very lucky, I have to say. You know, we're, we're a very busy place. Um, 
people usually like coming here and they like it even when they leave. So if you have an idea, you need to be passionate. And anytime you start to see a trend and you see business falling off and you start to wonder, okay, are we stagnant? Are we not giving the consumer what they want? Is it just because you can go out on a Sunday now and go to you know, 50 different breweries in the state and have a beer where you know, 10 years ago, if you wanted to try 10 different Connecticut beers or 15 different Connecticut beers, you could come here and you could try Hooker and City Steam and Back East and Broadbrook and Old Burnside and New England and, you know, Counterweight. I mean, well, they weren't around 10 years ago, but it's, it's so different now. And I think, it's, again, the consumer wins because they have fresh beer locally. They don't have to drive so far. So we've had to, you know, adjust the way we do things, too, because we're not like the only game in town anymore. But just because other breweries are competition doesn't mean it's not a strong community. Willie Brew's 40 Taps offers several Connecticut beers, and Connecticut breweries often team up for charity events. They lend each other hard-to-get ingredients, and Walner has had several brewing interns, many of them UConn students, who have gone on to open their own breweries. First, I was like the first UConn alumni to open a brewery, you know, 20-plus years ago. And now to have other people that it's like, yeah, I got a degree in something else like marketing or business, but I want to open a brewery. And not because it's so much fun, it's just because you do get to express yourself and you meet with great people. There aren't a lot of industries, I don't think, that can be so competitive, but we are competitive with our arms around each other. What's next for Walner and Willimantic Brewing? Although he's not quite ready to hang up his brewing paddle, he does want to teach someone how to carry on his business once he decides to retire and travel the world. Because, you know, a hundred years from now, this place should still be making beer, downtown Willimantic, serving some food to whoever's around. That was great, and I briefly want to note that um, if you ever go to the Willimantic uh, Boombox Parade on the 4th of July, the Willie Brew float is always the highlight of the parade. It's very Every year they have a different theme, and it's always very well put together. And they have a lot of past pieces of art hanging in the restaurant. They do. Too, from the float. And the, the parade goes right by the restaurant. It does. You can sit out front. You can. Um, so UConn alumni uh, has been doing a series called the 1881 series for the past few years where they hold special events at alumni-owned breweries, of which there are actually quite a few. This year they're going to have the 1881 series uncorked with special events at alumni-owned wineries. So keep an eye on UConnAlumni.com events for details on the uncorked series, which will be coming soon. All right, so <laughs> let's turn from craft brews to what's in the news. <laughs> So proud of myself. Ken, you recently talked to Professor David Yaloff, uh, who has expertise on a subject that's been uh, on the front pages lately. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, David Yaloff is a professor of political science and the head of that department. He also wrote a book titled Pursuit of Justices, Presidential Politics, and the Selection of Supreme Court Nominees, uh, with the nomination by President Trump of Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the seat. Uh, of retiring Justice Anthony M. Kennedy. We thought it would be a good idea to talk to Professor Yaloff about the process of selecting a new justice and the upcoming uh, United States Senate confirmation hearings. We're coming off a confirmation earlier in, the, in this presidency, but a block at the end of the Obama presidency. And, and I think a lot of people wonder, well, the Democrats are now saying, well, we, we can hold this 
like you did the last time with the last nominee. There's, there's precedent for some of this uh, manipulation in, uh, that you've written about in your book. Well, there's definitely precedent for the minority in the Senate or even a majority in the Senate that opposes a president to take temperature on the president's political strength, note that that strength is not there, and react accordingly. You know, there's a, if you go back to the 19th century, John Tyler, one of the weakest presidents in history, never elected, obviously. Andrew Johnson, who took over from Lincoln after his assassination. These were very weak presidents. Johnson was impeached. You can't get much weaker than that. And yet, their Supreme Court nominees, whether or not they were qualified, were going to be attacked, and they were attacked. It didn't really matter whether they were qualified. The president who was nominating them did not have much political power to fight back. And that's really what we saw with Barack Obama two years ago at this point. And what we're seeing now is when you do have the political strength on your side in the form of a Senate that agrees with you, anything is possible. Uh, We will see a fight, but it's hard to imagine the Republicans not getting their man. You have written uh, previously about the very various factors that shape the recruitment of someone to the Supreme Court, but as in many cases right now, all of the, the norms that we expect kind of out the, out the window. Well, the biggest norm was the need for some bipartisan consensus, that you would need at least 8 to 10 from the other side, or there would be either a filibuster or it would be a nail-biter. Now, there were exceptions. Clarence Thomas you know, got through 52 to 48, but there were a handful of Democrats that made it possible. With the filibuster now gone, uh, you can get the person through on the basis of a strict party line. That's probably what's going to happen. And so that means that you can appoint a very, very conservative nominee as Justice Gorsuch was, as Judge Kavanaugh, soon to be Justice Kavanaugh, might be. And there's almost nothing that the minority can do to stop it. So that norm of bipartisan consensus. I think I mentioned in the book the importance of ABA qualifications. Those kinds of things are almost irrelevant now. President Trump has decided to use another standard, not the Bar Association, which was basically the conservative organization list that he received, and that's who he's been working with. Yeah, you know, the Federalist Society has always had a tremendous interest in getting extremely conservative judges on the bench. The truth is, Republican presidents in the modern era have listened and taken advice from interest groups like the Federalist Society, the Cato Institute, the American Heritage. Of course, what's so unusual now is that President Trump openly is saying they're going to be vetting my my nominees. They're providing the list and I'm consulting with them and he doesn't make any buts about it. And that that willingness to be so open about it is very unusual and highly unprecedented. At the same time, one of the issues that always comes up with Supreme Court nominations, especially in the time of uh, that you studied very closely, when you had the advantage of all the internal memos and the discussions, which we don't have because you, when you finished your book, that's when the clamp was put down on access to presidential papers. Uh, Linda Greenhouse's piece recently in the New York Times uh, about the so-called Ginsburg rule, where the justice candidate would not be talking about their positions. Just within the last 24 hours since we sat down to do this, one of the senators said there's a million pages of, of Kavanaugh's writings to look through, which, of course, the Senate leadership is saying, well, we're not going to have time to go through all of that. This documented opinion from lower court rulings and previous writings 
seems to be where the focus is. Well, absolutely. If you didn't have the end of the filibuster rule, and if you didn't have one of the most polarized Senates and Congresses in history, the fact that Judge Kavanaugh was working in the White House at critical times in history, was working with Ken Starr on the investigation of Bill Clinton, was working hard for the Bush campaign during Bush versus Gore. All of this is going to create mounds of paper. And somewhere in there, these papers, you and I both know, something embarrassing, something unfortunate was said. This could all be a tremendous headache. And so you would have probably had people advising heavily against a Kavanaugh nomination because he wouldn't be the stealth nominee that a David Souter or others were. Better to have somebody that there isn't much paper. Well, again, Judge Kavanaugh is probably going to be confirmed despite that because you have a polarized Senate and the Republican numbers are there. You've always described this as a political process because obviously we're talking about presidential politics. In your book, you do cite that uh, like the situation when uh, Obama made his nomination of Merrick Garlick uh, and was told by Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, that uh, we're not, she's not going to move on this because we need the next president to do this, even though the sitting president has the constitutional right to make a nomination. This has happened several times, as you well, say. Well, I think what, what Mitch McConnell is arguing is if a president is in his final year and he, everybody agrees it's his final year, he's truly a lame duck, that we don't allow these things through. Now, the truth is we may not have had presidents in final years, although Lyndon Johnson was certainly in his final year when he nominated Abe Fortas to be chief justice. But there's a long history of presidents nominating justices in presidential election years. They've gotten hearings. They've gotten discussion. They've gotten floor votes. What's so unusual here is the declaration that this time we're going to let the, the American people decide. The Democrat response is a pretty good one. The American people did decide twice by electing Barack Obama to eight-year terms. They didn't elect him to a three-year term in 2012, so does the last year not count? But when you have the votes, you don't have to listen to that kind of logic. Is there any sense that we can go back to where it was a little bit more civil and a little bit different in the way we approach things, or is it this, as many critics and talking heads are, are thinking, is just blowing everything out of the water and we, it, we may be passing a mark that we can't return to? Uh, the short answer is we cannot return in kind of a slow incremental way. Uh, the last time the Congress was this polarized was the 1850s, and in the 1860s we had a civil war. And then, of course, that blew up the party system as we knew it then. The birth of the Republican Party in the 1850s was a response to just how polarized things had gotten. God forbid we have another civil war, but something like that, maybe a faux civil war or a cold civil war, is going to be required to shake up the political system to the point where the two parties are not this polarized. It is an incredibly tribal situation. Friends, neighbors... It's hard for them to talk across party lines anymore, and certainly the Senate and the House is representative of that sentiment. Uh, again, one of the things that, that you've, you've talked about previously, and as I referenced that you, you did this, your, your book initially just before access to presidential papers pretty much disappeared. We'll say declined heavily. We'll, <laughs> we'll say George W. Bush decided that almost everything was a national security threat. But, but you also point out that in certain presidencies, like Kennedy's and others, there wasn't a lot of on-the-record discussion about this. It was more conversational, which is certainly how this president seems to be functioning. Looking ahead 
for scholars such as yourself and those that are interested in this subject matter, how difficult is it going to be to try and determine how you can analyze this process going forward? Well, it's going to be hard to determine who said what to Donald Trump when. I don't think any of us believe that once Donald Trump is done being president, he's going to have such a great memory for everything he said. There's probably going to be a lot of disagreement about what he said. Here's what I will say. The goldmine for historians in 10 or 20 years from now, when they look back on the Trump selection process, is going to be walking over to the Federalist Society offices and asking to look at their documents and asking to look at their papers. And those aren't covered by the Presidential Records Act. I think that what enterprising scholars are going to have to do is throw away the old playbook and find new ways to get this information. Uh, the old rules just don't apply anymore. They don't apply in the decision making. And I'm not sure they're going to apply in scholarship either. Professor David Yellow, thanks very much. It's a pleasure, Ken, as always. Uh, that was great. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Professor Yellow as the process goes on as we learn more about the Supreme Court. There'll be lots of opportunities also for the media to talk to Professor Yaloff. He's already been talking with them, I can tell you that. Okay. All right, let's let's wrap things up. You know what? Let's wrap things oh, up. So excited. On a, a happy note. So excited to go to Tom's History Corner. After today. getting criticism from uh, someone who will go unnamed, but whose name is Julie Bartuka, <laughs> about you know previous installments of Tom's History Corner, which the name is going to be changed. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep, being working on it. Too heavy, too depressing. Promises, promises. Too grim. I thought we'd do something a little fun, a little Good. happy, a little lighthearted. See. And I thought we'd learn about social media, 1940s yes, style. Yes, this is the best. Now I'm sure some of you young people out there are thinking social media, 1940s style, meant Friendster or MySpace, but no. <laughs> this is even earlier. Even before w- MySpace. Would it be the society pages? Right? Best thing ever. So, we all, do we know what a clipping service is? Does everyone know what a clipping service is? Uh, I used to use clipping services. Yes, but I think you should explain for some of our younger listeners. So, a clipping service in the old days when you wanted to, for example, if you were interested in researching a topic, you would hire a service, usually in New York City, but they were based all over, comb the newspapers and find every mention of the subject that you wanted or a politician or something like that or a team, whatever, and they would clip those articles out of the newspaper and weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, they would mail you a package containing every article they could find from major newspapers about the subject. There's actually sort of a digital successor to this clip service. We, at, at the university, we, we pay for a clip service that sends us every mention of UConn in the media online. Didn't someone in this building used to have to physically yes. make those clips? That was the situation faced with Kitty Warner, class of 1950. I found this when I was trying to research a topic that Ken had mentioned to me uh, in the Daily Campus uh, from the January 4th edition. Actually, it wasn't the Daily Campus at the time they published it bi-weekly. It was just the Connecticut campus. So if you're wondering what the clipping service has to do with social media, uh, I'll just, you know what, I'll read this because the prose, which does not have a byline, which was very common in newspapers at the time, the prose is just so wonderful. Whenever Joe Drifter or his feminine counterpart make the pages of the campus, whether it be as co-ed quarterback or pool room king, chairman of AA or president of WCTU, I don't know what AA was, the chances are that they'll be clipped with no penalty by blue-eyed Kitty Warner of campus publicity. Soon after, Mr. and Mrs. Drifter will learn by letter the latest didos of their bewildering offspring. So basically, what would happen is whenever students were mentioned in the campus... Katie Warner would clip out the article and find their parents <laughs> and mail them the article along with a brief letter explaining why she was doing it. And she would also send a letter to their hometown newspaper. 
Over 200 letters had been sent out to several dozen different towns in two or three states by the time this article was compiled. It had started a year before the clipping service. And every issue of the campus, which again was twice a week, uh, would result in Kitty sending out three to 48 letters. Three to 48? Yeah, up to 48 letters. (laughs) Um, Begun last year under the direction of Pearl Pollock, class of 49, Kitty Warner's publicity department is little known to Storzians. (laughs) We should bring that back. We should bring that uh, but is often the only means by which students, parents learn of their sons and daughters' college activities. Did she send them uh, when their name would be in the police blotter, do you think? See, I want, well, so <laughs> having read. I don't think so. Having read a few uh, editions of the paper from that, there was no police news. Oh, God. We didn't have a police department. That's true. We had, didn't we have a constable? We had, yeah, we had like campus cop, whatever the his name hat. was. He's the guy yes, who, campus cop. Yeah, he's right. the guy who stopped the, the riot. his official title. But don't you think they would have known before that? Mm, not necessarily. <laughs> so, You're on your own now. You know, today, so you find out by Facebook or Instagram or whatever, whatever you're the, uh, as they put it in the paper, the latest didos of your bewildering offspring. I've never even heard that word before. (laughs) Do I have to look this up? But in in the late 40s, you would get a letter with a clip, which is nice because a lot of the articles were things like, um, you know, sports news about Mm -hmm. what students had done and, and, you know, campus elections and things like that. So it was very nice of Kitty Warren to do that. Do you have the definition of didos? Didos. Mischievous tricks or deeds. Oh, that's a good word. So um, I, you know, I so I kept reading through the paper, and then I found in the society section because there was a society section back then in 1950 the notice that uh, Kitty Warner had received the pin of uh, a student uh, Raymond Zucco, and congrats. so that was so apparently <laughs> so that she was she was going to get married that, going steady. So they were going steady, uh, and then I, you know, I got curious, <gasps> so I wanted to find out what happened if we could find out. I mean, who knows what would happen, right? So. The internet, uh, modern day clipping service. So not only did uh, Kitty Warner and Raymond Zucco get married, but they are still married to this Aww. day. And they, the, I found an article about their 60th wedding anniversary, which they had in New York City. How cool. Um, which they celebrated with their children uh, and, and grandchildren. Can we um, contact them? Can we get Kitty on the podcast? And the, the article about them noted that Kitty and Ray Zucco fell in love while in college at the University of Connecticut. They have built their family and professional lives as longtime residents of New Canaan and Wilton, Connecticut. Now, Kitty Zucco, by the way, is also a, an impressionist artist. And she's the president of the Silvermine Golf Club in Norwalk, Connecticut, uh, an active member of the Silvermine Guild Arts Center of New Canaan and the United Arts Council. That's of, a prestigious uh, that's arts very organization cool. down there. So, yeah, so there, there's, it, it, it's not only is this a neat little story about the clipping service, but it's an example of the lifelong love that was forged in the University of Connecticut. I'm sure we have many Yukon love stories. That's great. So if you if you know the Zuckos, or better yet, if you are the Zuckos, we'd love to talk to you about the clipping Seriously, service. Seriously, this is cool. And what else you were up to here at Yukon? I'm sure there was much more than the clipping service. Yes. But anyway, so that's that's a heartwarming Tom's History Corner. That's really nice. Thank with, you. With right a up happy my alley. Ending. So I feel like we should end on that high note. We should. We shouldn't go anywhere further and, from here because and, we'll just ruin it. <laughs> And if you, if you want to contact us for any reason, but especially if you are a friend of the Zuckos at UConn Podcast on Twitter is the best way to reach us collectively, but individually. You can find me at TJ Breen, Julie. At Julie Bartuka. Is there anything else you want to pitch? Oh, new issue of UConn Health Journal. Oh, there is a new issue of UConn Health Journal. Yes, thank you for reminding me. It just dropped on my desk today and the website will be up. So healthjournal.uconn.edu. We have... Um, Stories about bones and the ways that Yukon researchers are healing bones better, and a story about oh, 
very cool study being done uh, using MDMA, which is also known as Molly or ecstasy, to treat PTSD. Wow. Mm-hmm. Ken? Mondays, 430 to 7, WHUS.org, right. streaming online. Old reliable. And uh, I'll be there playing what we call good music. Good music. Thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye.